Cheese ice cream for the whole family and the opportunity to meet various local solar installers, as well as neighbors who have already switched to solar. Hosted by the volunteers of Waterbury League. For more information, call Duncan at 477-2968. No RSVP required. See you at the Leap Solar Summerfest, Tuesday, July 21st from 6 to 7.30 at the Crossett Brook Middle School on Route 100 in Duxbury. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Thank you, Jim Connie. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thanks for tuning in. What an awesome day out there today. Thanks for spending part of your morning with us. Coming up on the program today. Uh, yeah, it's one of those days you can take us outside with you. That's okay. Coming up at 10.30 this morning, we'll check in with uh, political reporter John Nichols. He writes for The Nation magazine and uh, has been covering the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign, which, uh, in case you missed the story earlier this week, Senator Sanders reporting not the largest amount of money, but the largest number of uh, single donations, the largest number of donations. So we'll chat up uh, with John. We'll catch up with John Nichols coming up at about 10:30 this morning, and we will welcome your phone calls throughout the program as well. You can reach us at the usual phone numbers: two four four. 1777 that's our local number in central vermont toll free you can reach us at 877-291-8255 that's 877-291-TALK we're going to get uh, right down to business this morning what an interesting life uh, guy gilchrist has been able to live how many of you out there would love to be able to have the title of cartoon artist and uh, Gil is joining us this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about one of the uh, the great comic strips that he was able to work on, and that's The Muppets, getting an opportunity to work with Jim Henson. And uh, The Muppets are actually coming back, a, a little bit of a revival. Kind of, It's sort of like the Rolling Stones. And uh, so let's give a nice home radio from out. Welcome this morning to Guy Gilchrist. Guy, thanks for joining us. How are you this morning? Good morning. It's great to be with you. Oh, the so Rolling Stones. Little... Now, actually, I just saw the Stones at LP Field here in Nashville. And you know what? They put on an awesome, awesome show. But, you know, the difference between the Stones and the Muppets is the Muppets are still the same age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's amazing how uh, how well-preserved uh, Mick Jagger, I mean, can still hop around that stage. It's remarkable. Oh, my God. 72 years old, I guess he's going to be. And, yeah, he rocks it for, like, two hours. Oh, you want to talk about well-preserved? Hey, look at that natural beauty, Miss Piggy. Come on now. <laughs> That's right. Well, she, let's put it this way. She hasn't gotten any uglier over time, right? <laughs> yeah, but the frog is still not saying yes. Yeah. So tell us how this all began for you. I was just fascinated reading about your, your growing up, and you got a rejection letter from Mad Magazine when you were 16 years old. Were you devastated? Oh, I was. Oh, I mean, I cried like a little girl for, for days and days and days, you know. And uh, But it was actually one of the greatest things that ever happened to me because it forced me. You see, the reason I got the, the rejection letter was because I was trying to imitate Jack Davis. You know who was the, the, the you know the, the most incredible artist that worked for Mad, you know. And I used to try to copy him. And the letter said, you know, we've already got Jack Davis. Why would we want you know a a, a poor uh, imitator, you know? And so it forced me to really begin to draw. 
and to really start looking at things and to start studying. I came from a very poor family, and the idea of art education going on to college was just not in the cards for me. And so instead, I took another route. Instead of going to, to, uh, to, uh, to school, I went to work. I went and found places that would hire me. Uh, and while uh, to, to do artwork at any fee. And while I was there, though, I got better and better and better. And, of course, uh, it wasn't very long. Uh, it was about, uh, I guess, only two years out of high school. I went to work for Weekly Reader. You remember Weekly Reader? Yep. And, uh, and, and that was an awesome thing. And then, of course, Weekly Reader led directly to the Muppets. You know, I started working for Jim. Gosh, I was, what, 24? Yeah, yeah, a, a nice, a, a nice uh, sort of almost first career here. So this happened back in 1981. How was that connection made? Uh, what had happened was uh, when I was working on um, uh, when I was working for Weekly Reader, I was doing a comic book that, that was a funny animal comic book, and there was the Museum of Cartoon Art that was in Port Chester, New York, and uh, that was about two and a half to two, two, two and a half hours from my house in Connecticut. I used to live in Connecticut. Now, that was run by Mort Walker, the, the famous cartoonist who did Beetle Bailey, High and Lois, and many other strips. And anyway, uh, uh, every, uh, every other Sunday, first Sunday, every first Sunday of the month, I think it was, they'd have a famous cartoonist come and speak in the auditorium at the museum. Well, the, every once in a while, the famous cartoonists couldn't make it for one reason or another, and they would look for someone local to fill in. Well, since I was uh, telling stories and doing shows in front of children in schools for Weekly Reader, they let me fill in one Sunday, and it went over well, and Mark said, you did a great job, but no one knows what you do, so we're, we're going to schedule you for a talk here, and we're going to put your artwork up in the lobby so people can see the artwork that you do. Well, they did that for me, and Mort never forgot the artwork that he saw up on the walls. And one day, uh, he was playing golf with Bill Yates, who was the editor-in-chief of Kim Features, the biggest comic syndicate in the world. And Bill was lamenting the fact that they had had a contract for a development of a comic of a of a comic strip based on the Muppet strip, the Muppet show that was on television, and it was the biggest thing in the world. But they had had it for ten months, and they were going to lose the contract because they had tried two hundred different artists and writers, and the Henson people didn't like any of them. And so Mort said, "Well, that's like a, a frog and a pig, right? Those are like animals, right?" Right. And Bill says, yeah. So he said, well, there's this kid that hangs around the studio, uh, and uh, why don't you call him? The phone rang one day. It was Bill Yates. I flipped out. I don't know how I didn't even pass out, because this is everybody's dream come true, and I was only 23 at the time. And uh, anyway, uh, at that time, there was no artwork of the Muppets. There was nothing. Uh, it was very, very difficult to even figure out, you know, what they look like or anything. But I was a huge Muppets fan. I did the best I could. I did six strips, brought them into King Features in a week. Bill liked what he saw. And eventually he sent the work over to the Muppets. And here's the part that I always try to bring out, and this is a long story, but this is the part that is very meaningful. 
to me, having that opportunity was like oxygen. It was what I wanted. It was what I needed to live. And so for one year, I wrote and drew the strip without hardly any encouragement at all. Just they didn't say, don't stop. So I just kept on doing. Eventually, I got to meet with Michael Frith and the Muppet people. And eventually, after a year of me working on it for free, but them never telling me not to, just me doing it on my own, I got the phone call that I wanted so desperately. It was from Jerry Jewell, the head writer of The Muppet Show, informing me that I had been chosen. Wow. Wow, what a story. And then you wound up doing this for, it looks like, uh, about six or seven years? Uh, about about six years. Uh, I, and while I was, yeah, so and it was, what a, you know, what a thing, of course, you know. We came out in uh, 660 newspapers all around the world. And Jim's philosophy was that the Muppets belonged to the world. And so we were the only comic strip that if you lived in Nepal or you lived in Brussels or Paris or New Zealand somewhere, and, and here in the United States, anywhere you lived in the world, the comic strip that you read here in the United States was the same strip that you read all around the world. It's the only comic strip in the history of comics that was like that. Hmm. Uh, you see, when, when, when we read Nancy here, you know, I've been doing Nancy for 20 years, when, when you read Nancy's here in the States, you know, you'll probably read it in Spanish or something, the, the same strip three or four months down the road. We, you know, they go into reprints over there. Um, but Jim wanted the Muppets to belong to the world. And so, yeah, at a very young age, I was put in a very hot spotlight. And it was pretty much, you know, uh, you know, dance really, really fast or, <laughs> or get burned. And, uh, and and I danced as fast as I could, and it changed my life. We're talking with Guy Gilchrist. He's a uh, cartoon artist, was one of those, along with his brother, who worked on the Muppets comic strip. You can join us on the program at 244-1777 is our local number, toll-free 877-291-8255. How long had the TV show been in existence when the cartoon strip came in, and what was the... What was the motivation for the cartoon strip, just to sort of amplify the the brand, or what? No, Jim wasn't really into that. Uh, you know, Jim was incredibly successful, and was actually very weary of anything that uh, that that wasn't going to work uh, in uh, in perpetuating the the, the the philosophy behind Muppets, and uh, you know, he didn't need the money, in other words. But Jim was a huge comic strip fan. We had uh, several comic strips that we loved in common. He loved Pogo. And he felt like I drew and inked a little bit like Walt Kelly, who created Pogo. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim, you know, Jim was from, you know, the Bayou and loved that strip. And, and of course, he set Kermit right in the Bayou, you know. Uh, and... Um, so what Jim wanted was to expand the readership uh, the, uh, of, he wanted now people to be able to read about his characters, and he wanted that to go all around the world, and he wanted to, to enhance uh, the love and the silliness that were at the core 
of the Muppets. And so this was Jim's pet project. He loved this thing. And so, of course, I got a lot of FaceTime and phone time with the most busiest, the, the busiest, the most creative genius of our time. Uh, the strip started at the end of the third year that the show was on the air. And uh, we went from 81 to 86. And, of course, also during that time, uh, you know, we were doing all the licensing and the merchandising of the, you know, the, 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 the different toys and games that Jim approved for the characters. Uh, so I was working with, with Jim very, very closely. Did you did you and your brother decide what the comic strip would be about? How involved was Jim Henson in that? When we first started out, well, every single gag that we wrote and drew, we sent it to King Features and also to Henson. It was a very convoluted and very uh, complicated uh, procedure. Uh, we were we we worked so far in advance. Uh, that we would we would mail our uh, strips in in rough form to both our syndicate and also to Henson, and then it would get passed around at Henson and looked at by Bill Yates, the editor at King Features, and then the ones that they approved, they would send back to us, and those would be the ones that we drew. The art would get sent in to uh, to uh, Henson as well. And uh, and when when it came time for the artwork to be drawn, Michael Flip, who was the artist, uh, the the vice president of all creatives at Henson, would personally blue line me, you know, fix the characters and stuff so they looked more like what Michael wanted them to look like, and send them back. So I was getting art lessons from the guy that was creating the Muppets with Jim. And every single gag that we did, Jim saw. And so, uh, so, but it was so amazing. I was doing this strip, I had been doing this strip for about like a year and a half. And you can imagine, you know, with all of those things to go through, those gates to go through, sometimes it could get very frustrating because we're waiting right. to find out. Yeah. You yeah, know, it sounds and we're trying to make a deadline. It was incredible. You know, because the Henson folks could not into a comic strip. So they're just looking at it, trying to make sure that it looked good, you know, that it was what they wanted. It could sit on somebody's desk for weeks or something. We're trying to get get the strips done. Well, one day we get a phone call, and it's it's Jim's people, and they're saying, you know, Jim was uh, had started work uh, development on Fire Rock, and they were doing a Miss Piggy special, and they were filming it up in Toronto at Channel Nine. He said, Jim would like to see you. So I flew up to Toronto, and I got to watch everything going on and stuff. And, and then Jim sat down with me, and I'd been only about a year and a half that I was doing the strip. And Jim and I had this most amazing talk. You know, he put his hand in my hand at one point and said, the strip is now yours. Wow. And, and that was it. The script is now yours. And from that moment on, there was no more approval process. I just you, described him a, you described him a couple of minutes ago as the uh, most creative genius that you ever knew. Tell me, why do you say that? 
Jim was constantly expanding his own horizons. He got great joy from expanding puppetry into new realms. All of the mechanisms, all of the wizardry that he came up with that we take so much for granted now. Jim and Foz, they made that up. Jim advanced the art of puppetry centuries in only a decade or two because he was always looking for another way and a better way. I remember one time when we first met and he took me out to eat at a really trendy, cool place called Maxwell's Plum. And it was in Central Park. Yep. And he had just finished filming, uh, he had just finished filming uh, The Great Muppet Caper. And in The Great Muppet Caper, there's a wonderful scene in the English park of all of the characters riding bikes in a choreography thing that looked like an Esther Williams, you know, swimming thing. There's like right. you know, all kinds of, it was a real, it was a real sort of, you know, uh, MGM kind of uh, musical piece. Yeah. And you saw them from Ariel. Anyway, Jim said, well, would you, would you like to see how I did that? And so he started moving the butter patties <laughs> and the glasses and the salt and pepper shakers and everything that was on the table all around. And he built cherry pickers out of forks and knives and stuff on top of, uh, on top of glasses, and he began to move the characters and show how he used the fishing line and how and explained how the, uh, the, the pedals had been mechanized so they could spin, they had batteries in them. And he loved showing you how he was doing his magic, and he would just get this look on his face like a child, you know, who was like, isn't this the coolest thing? Isn't this the coolest thing? And it was wow. the coolest thing. And Jim yeah. was like that about everything, all the time. We're talking with uh, Guy Gilchrist, a cartoon uh, artist. You can join us at 244-1777 is our local number. Toll-free, 877-291-8255. We're talking about the Muppets, which uh, Guy and his brother uh, were in charge of the comic strip version of, um, of those very popular characters, which are coming back to uh, TV this fall. So you mentioned at one point the message of the Muppets. What on earth, the, what, what did that mean? What is the message of the Muppets? Well, you know, if you, um, if, if you, if you really think about it, um, you know, so, you know, I had to really get down into the heart of the characters because I was writing about them the other day. And if you think about the Muppets, there's no hate. Nobody hates anybody, and no one is cruel. No one's cruel to any of the Muppets. You know, uh, Statler and Waldorf, you know, the old guys that are up in the balcony who are booing and hissing and cracking jokes at the, that poor, hapless bear trying to, you know, tell his terrible jokes. They love the bear. If it wasn't for the bear, they'd have nothing to do. They, <laughs> if the bear didn't show up, they might not even go and have their pacemakers recharged. I mean, they love the bear. And the bear loves them because he absolutely has no timing. And so if they weren't there to boo and hiss, his timing, his lack of timing would be even worse. And uh, they love each other. 
and uh, and they care about each other, and they're this one huge, large, universally dysfunctional family. One of them, heck, is blowing himself out of a cannon into a brick wall to impress a chicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you write for the Muppets, when you watch the Muppets, when you, as a consumer, consume the Muppet product, what you're getting is a lot of silliness and a lot of things blowing up and a lot of crazy music and a lot of crazy everything. And at the heart of it, though, is that even though we're all very, very different, we were, we, we were told by God a long, long time ago to love each other. And that's what the Muppets is all about. Any fear bringing these um, characters back? You know that maybe there were they had their time and their place, and maybe uh, they should be left there. I don't think so at all, because you know, since certainly you know uh, Brian and Cheryl, uh, Jim's son and daughter, have been wonderful stewards of the characters. You know, working with the Disney folks, and they've chosen the, the greatest quality people. And the, the last two or three Muppet movies that have been out over the last three or four years have been incredibly huge box office successes. And so it seems to me that, that as long as Brian and Cheryl are around, that the Muppets are in very, very, very good hands. And I'm sure that Jim is very happy. You know, Jim, uh, before he passed away, um, expressed a great interest and began uh, a great interest in the characters always um, always being around and not going away when he when he finally did and he wanted them to live on and he began negotiations with the Disney company before he passed away uh, for that to happen and so What's going on now is exactly what Jim wanted. Jim didn't want those characters to die. He wanted them to to live on. And from what I'm understanding about this new show, um, they're going to be parodying reality shows and and doing some sort of mockumentaries and uh, that sort of stuff. And they're going to be commenting on the media and TV of today, which, of course, is what the Muppets do the best. They parody, they parody our media and our culture. So I can't wait. Can you imagine Miss Piggy on The Bachelorette? <laughs> I mean, what, what would we call that anyway? The Baconette? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, yeah, and wouldn't she just shoo away everyone and want to give all of her roses to this one particular frog? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Maybe she could just be the piglet. <laughs> I like that. Um, so, did were any of these characters particularly difficult to draw, or were they? Tell me about that. Well, they all were, of course, at the beginning. Uh, but you know, one of the things that happened when the very first time I ever met Jim, uh, you know, I was called in. Um, he he flew in. He was doing the he was filming the Muppet Caper at the time. He flew in from London to meet with me, and, of course, I was freaking out, you know, and, uh, I mean, I, here I was just a little bit, a little bit anxious to meet him, you know, we had a 12 o'clock appointment, and I was probably sitting outside the brownstone on the, on the steps there at 8 o'clock in the morning, 
anyway, when, when I finally did get to meet him, he started looking at the drawings and stuff. And this is before, of course, I was going to start doing the strip. And he looked through the stuff and he, he said something to the effect that he said, well, these are, these are very good. They're very good, but they're not great. And we want everything to be great. He said, so, he said, he said, I want you to always remember that these aren't lines on people. And then he held his hand up, right hand up, and he said, I want you to meet Kermit. And he started talking. There was no puppet on his hand. He just started talking with his hand. And I, of course, saw Kermit. And he moved Kermit around as he kept talking about how the character was alive and that it moved in certain ways and it can't do this and it can't do this and because this is how it is. And then he took out a piece of paper and he drew his hand and a silhouette of his hand and he put Kermit on the top of it and immediately I completely understood what he meant. That all of these characters were three-dimensional and they had color and they had movement and everything and it was my job to capture that life on paper. And in order to do that, I had to see everything in three dimensions and then create an illusion of that on paper. And from that moment on, yes, it was incredibly challenging, but I learned from the man who created them how to do it. So I was in very good hands. Wow, what a story. So what, uh, why hasn't the comic strip been brought back? Well, the comic strip was mine. And when we retired it in 1986, that was, that was it. Now, you know, I'm sure that Disney will probably do a comic book and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't have any connections over there anymore. Uh, but the comic strip, uh, Jim, Jim had given that to me. And so when, when, when I walked away from that, that was that. I remember this was after I had left uh, doing, the, doing the strip. And I don't even think I was working on Muppet Babies anymore at the time. This could have been this could have been a year or so afterwards. And I went to see Jim about another project that uh, I had been developing with him. And uh, I remember sitting in his office and said, folks, uh, I'll just tell you a cute little story about how the office worked. The office had many floors. It had like three floors that went. Uh, above ground, and there were a couple of floors below ground. And it was over on East 69th Street in New York. And when you walked in, it had burgundy burgundy carpeting, um, but embedded into the carpeting was a yellow path in the in the car, a yellow carpeting that was embedded into it. And it went up a spiral staircase, several floors, and then where the the yellow carpet ended, it ended in a swirl that got smaller and smaller and smaller and stopped right at Jim's desk where Jim would put his feet. It was uh -huh. the yellow brick road. Yeah. yeah. And it ended wow. where it ended right there at Jim's feet. 
So anyway, I was sitting there, you know, uh, right next to the ending of the yellow brick road waiting for Jim to come into his desk. And I was looking around his office, and I hadn't been in his office a long time because he wasn't in his office all that often. He was so busy. But I'm looking on the walls and everything, and of course he had all of his Oscars and Grammys and, you know, Emmys and blah, 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 everything all over the place. And then he had just several, uh, several things that he was pleased with being on the cover of Time Magazine and Rip and Life and that kind of thing. And right on that wall, with its own lamp for it, was my original from the last Sunday that I drew and inked for the strip for Jim. He had, when I had mailed him the original, he had had it framed and put it in the middle with all of his most treasured awards. And I looked at that thing, and I'm going to tell you what, I, I, I cried because mm-hmm. I knew how much that had meant to him. Are you tempted to want to bring the, the comic strip back? If I was asked to, I would do it. Because you know what? I, uh, you know, I do so much talking and so much motivational speaking and touring, and the Muppets have always been a part of me, and I know them extremely well. If I was called and asked if I would bring it back, I'd bring it back in a heartbeat. And I know it would be just as successful now as it was then. Hmm. I've always been drawing. I never stopped drawing them. Never stopped drawing the characters. And of course, you know, I know the characters very, very well. And uh, I may be older, but of course, you know, those lines on paper, they never age. So if I was asked, you bet I'd bring them back. All right. So who would would have to ask you to make that happen? (laughs) Uh, King Features or United Features, you know, uh, whoever got the rights, you know, to, to, uh, to put that out there. And I actually have a feeling that if they ever wanted to do that, they know where to get a hold of me. I'm fairly, uh, <laughs> I'm okay. fairly out there, you know? I, cause I, thought, I thought you said Jim had basically given this to you. Yes. Well, yes, but I don't own the rights to the characters. Okay. He All had right. given me the, he had given me the rights, the, the creative, he, he had took the reins off, you know, and let me run free. With it. Got it. Okay. But no, I, so, but, but yeah. no, I can't. I could not bring it back uh, without the permission of uh, you know the Henson folks and the Disney folks. Got it. So you got a creative green light, not not a uh, ownership per se. Exactly. Tell, tell her, so, you got to tell our listeners a story about in '84 when you met with uh, when you met with uh, uh, President Reagan and his wife. Oh my gosh! What an amazing thing. Um, you know, here I am. I'm a kid that grew up in the shadow of the Berkshires, you know, in a hillbilly town in Connecticut called Winstead uh, that barely existed after the flood of 55. And, you know, I learned how to draw sitting in a diner uh, as a little kid while my mom worked. She'd open up the funnies every day and they had grab placemats and stuff. And then to try to keep me occupied and make sure she didn't get fired, she just had me draw the funnies all burn day. And then to get that phone call from the White House in '83, telling me that President Reagan's favorite comic strip was the Muppets. Mm-hmm. He read it every day, watched mm-hmm. the post, and, and they wanted me to be the guest of honor at the White House for the Easter celebration. 
So I got to draw, you know, a pig, a frog, and a bear on a cover for their program and get the White House. And President Reagan and Nancy Reagan were not there that day. Uh, the president was over in Reykjavik uh, negotiating the, uh, the nuclear arms treaty with the Russians. Yeah. And so, uh, my, so my host and hostess was then Vice President Bush and his wife, Barbara. And that actually began a lifelong friendship between us. This little kid from Winstead, Connecticut, with the vice president, and then, you know, of course, the president of the United States, knowing my name, we had a ball. I'll tell you a funny, funny story if we've got time about something that happened that day. Oh, definitely. So Go ahead. The, okay, so at, the, so at the Easter egg wall, uh, at the Easter egg wall, there's, there's you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of children and they're running all over the lawns of the White House and you know, they're looking for Easter eggs and all this stuff. And they had, and they had the walk-arounds, you know, the, the, the big characters walking around in, in suits of all kinds of different things. You know, Twinkie the Kid and M&Ms and, and all kinds of characters. And we had two breakdancing fraggles. Remember the fraggles? And uh, we had no, Ozzy Bear. No, no. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so uh, what they did was they, there were photographers and media from all around the world. This is a huge thing. And so they took and they had porta potties, but they had the porta potties like a mile down the road so they wouldn't be in any of the photography. Anyway, anyone that was going into the White House and not just being outside on the lawns had to be vetted very, very heavily because we were at war with Libya at the time. Okay. And so we had all of these credentials that you had, you know, and you had to be approved many, many months in advance if you were going to go into the White House. And, of course, I was in the White House all day long signing my programs and stuff. Well, we had a guy that we called the Fraggle Wrangler. Now, a Fraggle Wrangler are not genes for Fraggles, okay? They are... Uh, the Fraggle Wrangler was the guy that would walk around with the Fraggles and make sure the kids didn't push it down the hill to watch them roll, you know? Right, And so, anyway, I finished up about a three-hour autograph session, and I'm going back into our camper to take a little bit of a nap because I know they're not going to ask me to come back and sign stuff for another hour or two. And the guy that was a Fraggle Wrangler said, guy, 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 let me borrow your IDs and stuff. I'll bring them right back in five minutes. I've got to go use the restroom. And they were a mile away. I went, okay. So I gave him my stuff. And I said, well, hurry back. Hurry back. So anyway, he takes off. I go to lay down. About five minutes later, I wake up in a daze because there's a knock at my door. It's only five minutes. Well, I, I just wake up and I open up the camper door. And it's somebody telling me, I'm signing autographs now. Again, and this time I'm signing them with, um, uh, with uh, uh, you know, the, the Orioles and, and, and the, the Redskins and blah, 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 and get your, you know, get your butt up there. So anyway, uh-huh. I don't think anything. I just take off and I go up. Well, I have absolutely no internal GPS at all. I would get lost in a phone booth if they still existed. I don't know how to get anywhere, and I totally space out and forget. I'm really good with some things, but that is just not a gift that God gave me. I get up to the White House all by myself, and I get lost in the White House. 
I'm trying to find where I'm supposed to be, and all of a sudden, I'm completely alone. I'm alone walking down the hallway in the house when all of a sudden this big hand comes down on me from behind. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in a chair in a little room, and it's the secret service. And it's like, who the heck are you? Where's your stuff? Where's Mm -hmm. your IDs? Where's your stuff? Where's your security passes? And I, like, go to show my security passes, and I'm going, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And my wallet is back at the camper. I have nothing. And I'm sitting there freaking out, and I'm saying to him, look, I draw a pig, a frog, and a bear. I've been drawing a pig, a frog, and a bear all day long. I draw a pig, a frog, and a bear, and he is getting frustrated. He's going, I need to see some stuff. Anyway, and he starts talking on his walkie-talkie. This is 1984. Those giant walkie-talkies that looked like those giant mobile phones at the time that had the little pad and paper on them, that's what Uh he had. And he's going blah, 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 and he's talking to somebody. Now a second guy comes in, and they start doing bad cop, bad cop with me, okay? I am freaking out. I'm in a room. I have nothing. So just for self-preservation, I reach up. I grab out of the secret service man's hand. I grab that giant walkie-talkie that has a little pad on it. And as fast as I can, I draw a picture of this piggy, and I hold it up with my arm trembling mm-hmm. to his face. And he looks at it and goes, Oh, hey, could you sign that to Sandy? Oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What an Muppets, awesome day that yeah. was. That was the Muppets a, getting you yeah, out what of What a dream come true. And, and when I got home uh, from all of that, there was a letter in the mail from Nancy Reagan, uh, which I, of course, have on my wall. And she told me that my artwork that I'd done for them and uh, several pieces of my work that had been passed on from me through the Henson people were going to be enshrined in the Smithsonian. So there you go. Doesn't get any better than that. Guy, thank you um, yeah. very much for your time this morning, and uh, good luck in your efforts, and uh, I really appreciate you spending part of your morning with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And if folks want to reach out to me, uh, they can reach out to me at Nancy and Sluggo.com. Nancy and Sluggo.com. Reach out to me and say hello and come and see what we're doing. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Yeah, Guy Gilchrist so is uh, uh, one of the original uh, artists involved with the Muppets series, which ran back from 81 to 86. They're bringing the TV characters back this fall. A moment of your time for our friends at Green Mountain Access. If you're looking for an outstanding local Internet service provider, make it our friends at gmavt.net. You can call them today at one 321 and on the web at gmavt.net. A division of Waitsfield and Champlain Valley Telecom, an outstanding company, great tech support services. And again, one 321 0815-GMAVT.net. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these important announcements.
148 delivered and 77 to go during the McMahon 225 Challenge. Hi, this is Steve Sace from McMahon Chevy Buick. First, we'd like to thank Ted Holdley of Sammy's Restaurant for getting his brand new Chevy Silverado at McMahon. And I'm Matt Dever, sales manager at McMahon. We're in the final month of our 90-day challenge to sell and deliver 225 vehicles by close of business July 31st. With an all-time record in May and a new record for June, we're on our way. So whether it's price, working with the banks to get you a lower monthly payment, or moving on the trade, we're going to do what it takes to earn your business. To reach our goal, we stocked up on new cars and trucks, and we still have McMahon's Cash for Junkers program with a guaranteed minimum trade allowance of $3,000 towards any used vehicle in stock, even at McMahon's import corner. Remember, we want your trades, not just the X-Wing fighters and tanks. We're looking for late model, clean domestics and imports. The McMahon 225 Challenge at McMahon Chevy Buick on the corner of Route 15 and Route 100 in Morrisville. This goal is super important to us, and we'll do whatever it takes to get there. Come put us to the test and see for yourself. We are making deals the other guys won't. Ah! Chevy, find new roads. Savings happen every day at Kinney Drugs. And to help you save even more, check out our Price Buster specials. Super low prices on hundreds of items throughout the store. Like Nutella spread, two for $6. Centrum Ultra 100 count, $9.99. And Finesse Hair Care products, only $1.99. Just look for the Price Buster signs at any Kenny location. Or check out our weekly ads to see even more. Super low prices, super big savings. That makes all the difference. Only at Kenny Drugs. RB Technologies on Route 14 in East Montpelier has been creating and supporting thoughtfully designed, custom-crafted computer networks and communication systems for their business clients since 1997. Here's team member Crystal Capron. I think that RB Technologies' mission is to not only build lasting relationships with our customers, but also earn the trust of our customers. Loyalty, respect, and trust are the first three words that pop into my head when I think of RB Technologies. Not only do they strive to satisfy their customers, but also their employees. I think a big part of of what sets RB Tech aside from the competition is that we are not just focused on computer networking and technology. We get involved in the community as much as we can. From supporting the Vermont Chamber to the Mountaineers baseball team, RB Technologies cares not only about the customers, but about the community. The team at RB Technologies knows it's all about building lasting relationships. Call 223-4448 or online at rbtechvt.com. When you think of business technology and communications, think of RB Technologies. The sizzling summer sale is now in progress at Hooker's Furniture. Save 40% store-wide featuring the all-new Sealy Posturepedic with the core support center for maximum comfort and support. Save on Sealy Cool Gel Memory Foam Mattresses and the very popular Half Inner Spring Half Cool Gel Memory Foam Hybrid. Whatever you do in bed, Sealy supports it with fantastic store-wide savings during the sizzling summer sale. Only at your betting experts, Hooker's Furniture on Route 100 and Waterbury Center. So drive a little and save a lot. Attention Vermonters, since 2000,